The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. The Brandon Peters Show and the summer of 82 at 40. The summer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. As always, along for this journey from Forbes and living in 1982 himself, he was there, Scott Mendelson. Hello, hello, hello. In 1982, I was... Not quite breathing on my own, but getting there. I was born in April of 1980s for my first, first 10 weeks premature, spent my first year in the hospital, and then was in and out of the hospital for the second year. Uh, I'm okay now. I mean, I'm a little hard of hearing, and I can't, you know, I run out of breath pretty quickly, but other than that, I'm doing okay. Wow, that's more tragic than one of our movies here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a happy ending, though. Yes. This episode will be looking at June 18 through 20 of the show in a what was what is going to be a who's going to take down ET from here on out. But Spoiler, not much. Not much. So who who will be number 2 for the rest of the summer? That's what we'll we'll look at and we'll do. But first as always, the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. What's happening now between Argentina and Britain over the Falklands almost defies explanation. But here's a try. Argentina says a state of war still exists, and in a reversal of roles, it says a state of war will continue to exist until all British troops leave the islands. But Argentina did agree to allow its POWs to come home. The British liner Canberra and another ship left Stanley today, heading for an Argentine port. On board, some 5,500 Argentine soldiers. On June 14th, Argentina surrenders to Great Britain, ending a 74-day Falcons Islands conflict. Uh, On June 15th of this week, Supreme Court rules all children, regardless of citizenship, are entitled to a public education. 1982. Oh, God. Not that long ago. Really. I'm horrified to ask what how that case came about. But I don't I'll know, ask. but wow. See, like, when we think of things like, you know, yeah. women voting and civil rights, it's not really in the grand scheme of things. Hadn't been that long. That's why people <sighs> still are angry. Still, It's still not perfect. It, it has not been that long. No. Oh, history of the world. Uh, June 17th, U.S. President Ronald Reagan's first U.N. General Assembly address, We Must Serve Mankind Through Genuine Disarmament. Delicious. Malicious. June 18th, uh, ABC's All Talk Radio Network expands to 22 stations. I'm sure that's thriving today. (laughs) Uh, On June 18th, also, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 extended by the Senate in an 85-8 to vote. Back in my day, the Voting Rights Act was a bipartisan issue. And whenever it came up for renewal, it was almost unanimously approved in the Senate and House, no matter the political party. (laughs) Oh, I'd like to see the uh, gerrymandering of those districts back in 1982 (sighs) as well. That's probably a good map to look at. Uh, On June 19th, the body of God's banker, Roberto Calvi, is found hanging beneath Blackfriars Bridge in London. Not all news is good news, as we found. I would would know more about that. Yeah. Remind me to Google that later. That's interesting. interesting. God's baker? Yeah, God's baker. June 20th, uh, the U.S. Open men's golf, Pebble Beach. Tom Watson wins his only U.S. Open by two strokes from Jack Nichols. (laughs) Nicholas. <laughs> the other, no, not Nicholas. Yeah, We're talking movies, but this yeah, is the yeah. golfer. Uh, <laughs> I've uh, made that mistake too in my day. Don't worry. <laughs> on, on June 20th, Pete Rose is the fifth player to appear in 3,000 games, um, joining Cobb, Musial, Aaron, and Yaz. Um, Marjorie Bennett 
and Kurt Jurgens, uh, the Kurt Jurgens, the villain from The Spy Who Loved Me, they passed away this week in 1982. We have two birthdays: uh, one actor, Missy Peregrim, and the beloved, the amazing, the wonderful Jodie Whittaker, uh, the first female Doctor, Doctor Who star of Attack the Block, Broadchurch, amazing woman. She turned 40. She turned 40. This, she turns 40 this this week, uh, but she was born in June of 1982. How old is that in Doctor Who years? Oh, <laughs> the Doctor is well over 900. Fair so, enough. That is a pop culture property that I have very. I mean, I'm aware of it. I, I oh yeah, I'm. Actually, I know Karen Gillan became a stone. I kind of like it a little bit. Yeah, Karen Gillan comes from it's there. It's only you know 50 years worth of thing. I could catch up, right? 60, 60. Oh Scott. God! <laughs> next year, episodes. next year is the 60th. More or less episodes than Sesame Street. Oh, gee. well, there was <laughs> there was a uh, of almost well, it was about a let's see. About an eighteen-year break in there. Oh, so, there you go. In the middle, where well, we got that TV movie on Fox that did not lead to a series. So, <laughs> but yeah, but that that was the news of the moment for this week. Uh, moving on to our our first movie is author author. It has exclamation points and it does repeat the author author. We had breakfast. We're washing dishes. We're bagging garbage. We're surviving, right? Yeah, yeah, we're doing beautifully. You want to take a wacky clean in the opening of this, or should I just buy another for tomorrow? Anyone can be a father, but not every father deserves a standing ovation. He's definitely one of us, as much as a grown-up. Can be. Al Pacino and the kids in Author, Author, rated PG. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. Directed by Arthur Hiller, the director of Love Story, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, The Babe, Silver Streak, Man of La Mancha, written by Israel Horovitz, starring Al Pacino, Diane Cannon, Tuesday Weld, Bob Dishy, Ari Myers, and Richard Belzer. Uh, it's, while facing the stress of his play being produced on Broadway, a playwright deals with having to raise his son, his stepdaughters, and his stepsons. So, Scott, tell us about this piece of Kramer versus Kramer exploitation. <laughs> you took the joke right out of my mouth. <laughs> Is this is a real thing? There, there was a good chunk in this area of knockoffs of Kramer versus Kramer. Like that was uh, it. Like, oh shit, we need to make these divorce pictures. Well, I would imagine. I mean, the first, you know, the ah, the first Kramer versus Kramer won the Oscar for best picture in nineteen seventy or nineteen eighty. It was nineteen seventy nine. Mm-hmm. I believe Meryl Streep won her first Oscar as best supporting actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would then win best actress for Sophie's Choice, and then inexplicably win best actress for The Iron Lady in two thousand eleven. But that's another grouchy conversation. Now, um, was was so b- prior to Kramer versus Kramer? What was like? Was the big divorce movie The Parent Trap before that? And they got back together <laughs> at the end. Default, and they got back together. On a train and, for kids. Yes. Um, <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. The you know it, the movie made Kramer versus Kramer made like 109 million domestic in mm-hmm. 1979, which is like 400 million adjusted for inflation. Yeah, um, it's it sort of used as sort of the go-to example of the kind of film that people actually showed up for back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, to a certain extent, this this subgenre is it kind of falls in the trap of lionizing men for doing the kind of emotional and physical labor that women do as a matter of course. Mm-hmm. Um, this film does fall in that trap a little bit. I don't think it's as grandiose about it as some of the others. I think it's a, it's mostly a very small scale, low key character study. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's somewhat auto- autobiographical. Uh, the writer Israel Horowitz, Horowitz, excuse me, based on his own life to a certain extent, and I think that gives it a certain gravity and and in a shooing of melodrama, at least to the very end, I would say mm-hmm. that works. And I think the picture. Whether it succeeds or not, I think it makes an effort to try not to villainize the wife that leaves. Um, but it does. It does. But it I, does. I think. Um, but I also think, to a certain extent, you know, if I spoil the ending, you know, his <laughs> his moment of of realization comes when he realizes that you know he doesn't need her to be happy, and she deserves to be happy on her own. Yada yada mm-hmm. yada. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to. 
have a stereotypical family unit to be a real family. And I don't know how progressive that was in 1979, but I imagine, you know, it's certainly, and this was before the quote unquote divorce generation of the Reagan era, mm-hmm. but no, I mean, I, I, well, this is right around. I'm sorry. I was thinking 1979. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we, are, we are officially in the Reagan yeah. era, sir. Yes. Yes. I don't think it's an exceptional picture. It's, it's, it looks lovely. Uh, it's great fun to watch Patino just play a guy, even though he's, you know, a somewhat successful playwright, you know, he still has a certain blue collar sensibility and actually, uh, and I know you did too. And when people listen to this, you know, three months from now, this is being recorded during the week that the Godfather was re-released into Dolby cinemas for a week right. for the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I, I did drag my 14 year old to see it on Tuesday. It was a four <laughs> o'clock show. I took my 10 year old. What do you think of it, if I may ask? He was really, he was actually, I could tell it was, he. it's nothing like, it's like nothing he'd watched before. Yeah. I t- and I warned him of that. I'm like, you haven't seen movies like this, but if you get a chance to see The Godfather in the theater, I'm not going to take that from you. I was going to show this movie to you in a couple years, but yeah. Uh, but he was really into the family dynamics of things and character motivations and stuff, but I could tell he was getting slightly restless at times and then slightly into it at times, um, but... He made it through without complaining and talked about. And he's like, "How would they? How did they make another one of these? Everybody got killed." And I'm like, <laughs> "I was like, yeah. well, I mean, well, when the 4K set arrives at our house, we if you want to go on, we can go on." Well, you might want to show him Mamma Mia. Here we go again. First, I'll understand the structure of the Godfather Part Two. Yes. <laughs> no, Ali, I think she appreciated it more than enjoyed it. And to be mm-hmm. fair, especially when viewed for a modern lens, you know it. There are portions that can be sped up if need be. I think the film takes its time explaining stuff in terms of mob culture and or at least mm-hmm. mob movie tropes that are now taken for granted and are no right. longer mesmerizing and surprising and, you know, a peek inside a unique world you've never seen before. Right. Because this was one of the first films, at least on that scale, that was about the mafia from inside the mafia. It wasn't just about a bunch of G-men trying to catch mobsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was or, grounded, or, but yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was. They were like, yeah. "Hey, come over here, see, come on, go ahead." Rewatching it for the first time in a while, I was surprised by how not violent it is. I mean, other than the nudity, I know they almost got a PG, and I can kind of see why. Well, when, there, when it, there is to violence. Count it does. I mean, yeah, yeah, Mo yeah, Green's I mean, death is like yeah, graphic. The, the opening. The opening mass, you know, there are gore highlights, as you would say, if this were a slasher film, mm-hmm. but it certainly, I would think, evolves within the realm of, if need be, a 70s PG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, it could definitely. So, you know, I told her if she if she wants, you know, a mob movie that's a bit more rock and roll, we can watch Goodfellas at some point. Right. But no, I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was fine. I I almost wish we had watched it at home just because I forgot how hard Marlon Brando is to understand. <laughs> Uh, and I still maintain that that is epic category, Oscar category fraud, that he absolutely should have been best supporting actor and Al Pacino should have been best actor. But oh, well, anyway, point being, you know, this film was literally 10 years after The Godfather. Yeah. And the, the 80s were not kind to Pacino. He was he was struggling mm-hmm. just because I think not unlike what we see today, Pacino wasn't the kind of person that you would see in a in a Back to the Future or a Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Indiana Jones, the kind of films that were popular in the aftermath of Star Wars and Jaws. And, you know, you were in a situation, this was post-Heaven's Gate, where there was starting to be some struggles with the adult skewing drama as a theatrical driver. You know, if to, if to whatever extent Hollywood made all those auteuristic cool, grounded, street-level dramas or whatever to appeal to the kids in the 70s. Well, the kids in the 80s wanted, you know, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we have very similar situations now, but... Well, he went the be- way of, like, uh, I mean, like, the directors of the 70s, not all of them survived. Yeah. And, like... Yeah. Uh, like, he went the way of, like, a... Not to as extreme degrees, but, like, a Chimino or Friedkin, where yeah. he started to fizzle away. But he yeah. managed to De Palma it and make it through. Even, that's I mean, one, Spielberg even didn't have it good in yeah. the 80s. 
Yeah, he and you know, we talked about that I think during the ET podcast. Mm-hmm. But with with Pacino, and to be fair, the movies weren't all that great. I mean, we're talking about right. cruising, revolution, author, author. I think Stark Carface is massively overrated. It's entertaining, mm-hmm. but it also was a huge flop. I mean, yeah. it, it was not a hit when it first came out. So it really wasn't until Sea of Love in 1989, which was sort of a I mean, basically, it was a very high-concept, glossy, adult-skewing, erotic thriller. Right. Before Basic Instinct and right after Fatal Attraction. Yeah. And then he would follow that up with The Godfather Part Three and Dick Tracy. And then he was just yeah, old enough Carlito's to sort of be, Way. And, uh, yeah, yeah, Carlito's Way. And that was when he was becoming old enough to be sort of a bankable character actor. Right. Where he could be a leading man for a prestigious picture, or he could be a supporting character in something somewhat, you know, devil's advocate-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, which I adore that film. That's you know neither here nor there. Same thing with Scorsese. I mean, I love After Hours, but the '80s were not kind to of. him. Mm, I mean, what was? I mean, De Niro had like Midnight Run and stuff, but it's not like he yeah. was the type of actor you'd throw in Back to the Future and yeah, like and where I th- I, comic book films like Joker was like the perfect fit for a De Niro. Like that's yeah. where he could fit. But yeah, uh, and I think to a certain extent, the resurgence of indie cinema. Also triggered a resurgence in the 90s, triggered a resurgence of indie sensibility. So you had, to a limited extent, an audience for De Niro, Pacino, Scorsese. I tell Travolta comes back. Yeah. Yeah. That might Mm -hmm. be why Travolta came back. And, you know, even, you know, I, I, the, the, even the Stallone that made, you know, Victory and, and Paradise Alley, you know, briefly shows up again in Copland toward the end of the 90s. But anyway, I'm getting way off the reservation here. But no, it's, it's, not great. I can see why it didn't get grave reviews in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I struggle not to grade it on too much of a curve. Just on the whole, it's a real movie with character, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. That now we used to take for, take for granted. Yeah. What do you think of it? I, I think it, it's a movie that it, it shifts its interest and isn't sure where it wants to make the movie. Like some of it is really interested in the play. Some of it's really interesting in the family, and it never mesh. Maybe it's by design to try to get you to feel the stress of Pacino, but as a viewer, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm going this way. There's like an interesting story with him and Diane Cannon and him trying to juggle all this with that, and it doesn't really go anywhere. It drops off. There's stuff with the kids, and I don't think Pacino's good with kids. Like I, I, I don't it's certainly think different. It's, it's, it's maybe I didn't haven't seen him with that before, but I don't believe he has any experience in real life with kids, and it kind of shows, but it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. And I, I, it's a real weird situation where it's like we want to live with this like man that's been our stepdad for like a, a year. I don't know how yeah. long they've been together. I don't know. It's it's a definitely. It's the Kramer versus Kramer thing, but something you've not seen before and not doesn't get really made even after this. Yeah. And he, of... even, he even said he made this film specifically because he thought it would be interesting to play a character mm-hmm. who's, you know, was partially, was almost primarily motivated by his relationship with his children. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're right. That's not something that, 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 and honestly, you know, the leading men of that era were not quite old enough to be regularly playing husbands and fathers at that point. Yeah. It's a New York movie that showed me a part of New York that I don't think I've seen much in movies. It felt like a new yeah. piece, a different piece of New York rather than your typical, typical. I mean, there's, look out, it's Batman. Right. There, I mean, there's your, your Woody Allen, New York, there's yeah. your Martin Scorsese, New York's, and they can do the same New York all the time because that's their New York. But there's other filmmakers that do kind of the same spots with New York <laughs> This one felt like it was a specific area, and I remember, and they, they, I remember a line, and it was really funny. They dogged um, Greenwich Village, boring Greenwich Village. I'm like, that was like a happening place in like the 90s and early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, that was where all the hipster stuff was going on. I, I personally, I went and saw a live uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight uh, when I was oh, in wow. New York in 2000 in Greenwich Village, where they were doing it. So I was like, oh. That was a happening place back then. There, there was this weird uh, song that bookends the film about milk and cookies, and it was really yeah. it was like, what is this? <laughs> like, it's like you remind me of milk and cookies. I was like, no, no. But that song, I guess, was up for a Razzie. So, I you know, odd turn of events. Okay, Razzies. Okay. <laughs> How old are the Razzies? They've been around for a long time. 
Well, I think they I began mean, in the early 80s. There was, uh, I think Xanadu was the film that started them or something like that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, yeah, this movie is not something to seek out. It's hard. To, it's not really available. It wasn't even available. To, I had to rent a DVD from the library um, and it's not on any streaming service, not available digital rent or anything, not on Blu-ray. So uh, I, I not- had to. I had to find the man that had a copy, go to his house, murder him, and take his copy. Yes. And it was Betamax. It was Betamax with Spanish subtitles. <laughs> uh, and pen and scan. Pad, yes. Yeah, no. But yeah. Yeah, author, author. Yeah, just, I was looking, I was like, oh, this would be, it's a Pacino movie. He's yeah. usually good, but yeah, it was, yeah, I, I've done worse things with my time, I guess. I don't. I don't well, want to dog the movie too much, but I don't think it's that great either. Well, because most of my, you know, even though you know I've seen my share of Pacino films, I tend to think of him in the more extreme character parts that he does. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you know Michael Corleone or Serpico, or right. the you know the unhinged bank robbery he plays in Dog Day Afternoon, uh, and then you know later on, you know. The Devil's Advocate, Dick Tracy, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. That it is fun to see where he's just a guy. Yeah, that's true. And but it's I guess yeah. him and Arthur Hillary didn't get along during yeah. this movie. But this is a period where Pacino didn't get along with a lot of directors. Friedkin had a lot of trouble with him on uh, cruising, and he Al's an interesting cat when you read about. He has his own, like, if you want to get him to set, you have to tell him five hours before where you really want him. Yeah, I've heard some stories. And he's very <laughs> conscious, self-conscious about his hair. And he's, but the thing is, he's not a dick. He's really calm about and oblivious about everything. But he's, yeah, uh, yeah interesting. Um, he's a, a genius on the screen and pretty good. But from what I hear, he's pretty good on stage, too. Like that's the difference yeah. between him and De Niro is Pacino can do the stage, De Niro can't. But yeah, yeah he I've I've heard some very interesting stories and read I've read books and stuff where they talk about how Pacino was in the late seventies, early eighties. I don't know if he's still like that, but Well, I I hope not. He's in what his eighties right now. Right. Is he? Uh pretty da, da, old. Da, da, da. But I hope he's sort of mellowed out a little bit. You know, author, author. 81. Jeez, he mm. turns 82 in next month. Dang. 82. Uh, celebrating the 82. That's ironic. Uh, uh, author, author. I don't know if it's what a picture type thing. <laughs> to many people, you seem to represent man against the system. Do you see it that way? Uh, to some people, I represent a... Uh, dying individuality that is it within our system but that's uh i feel there is a crying out for individuality i feel that because of of the intellect of the human race they uh we bogged ourselves down in such bureaucratic nonsense that it seems like we've made life much more complicated than it should be so we'll, we'll go to our TV TV show, Top 10 TV from the Nielsen Ratings for this week in 1982. Number one, Scott, a Baba Walters special on ABC. Oh. Uh, yeah, those were a big deal. Those were a huge deal back in the day. Barbara Walters they were. Special. I remember the after Oscar special being, you know, with the weepy interviews with celebrities being, you know, must-see TV. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean... Now that we get people on social media, no one would care about these Barbara yeah. Walters specials. Social media and all this, and bonus features on Blu-rays and stuff, they kind of sent away. Number two, uh, Too Close for Comfort finishes from ABC. Number three, Hill Street Blues or NBC climbing it up. They have jumped up the charts here. Number four, Three's Company on ABC. Number five, Trapper John MD on CBS. Number six, everyone's favorite, MASH on CBS. Also on CBS at number seven, The Jeffersons. At number eight, give me a break on NBC. Number na- number nine, Five Days Home on NBC, which is a George Papard directed film starring he and Sherry Boucher. So I had to look that. I was like, "What the hell is Five Days from Home?" And like that finished in the top ten. It's not a TV <laughs> movie. It was a theatrical release from 1979 that aired on NBC. So it must have been a big. It must have been an of its time popular thing that didn't make it. <laughs> certain, certain mileage, but 
George Papar directed himself. And number 10, Love Boat on ABC. So Love Boat has cracked the top 10 here. So Scott, this Barbara Walters special. You know what it was on? Yes, I looked it up. I had oh, to. Oh, awesome. And this is great. This is great. This is the best segue ever. Satanic uh, Panic? It was her summer special with Carol Burnett. Oh. Willie Nelson. Oh. And Clint Eastwood, who is the star oh, of... Oh, son of a bitch. Our next, Spe- our next film, of Fire Fox. that struggled in the 80s. Yes, our next <laughs> film, Fire Fox. I was very happy. I was like, oh, look at that. Fire Fox. The plane, Fire Fox. The most devastating killing machine ever built. The man, Mitchell Gant, U.S. fighter pilot. Gant, can you fly that plane? Yeah, I can fly it. The mission, steal Firefox. Clint Eastwood in one of the most incredible undercover operations in history, Firefox. Clint Eastwood in Firefox and Caddyshack, the comedy with balls. Starts tomorrow at selected Skyline drive-ins, both rated M. Clint, he was probably on because this movie was opening, and Carol yeah. Burnett, we'll talk later, is in is in our uh, our last movie today, uh, which was opening wide. So these were two planted pl- from studios interviews, probably, to go with this weekend of release. But yeah, we're on to Firefox, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Alex Lasker, uh, who did only like six films, and the other notable one was like way later, Tears of the Sun. Uh, Wendell Wellman also wrote it, and he would act in Sudden Impact, he didn't write anything else, based on a Craig Thomas novel starring Clint Eastwood, Freddie Jones, Kenneth Colley, and David Hoffman. It's about a pilot who's sent into the Soviet Union on a mission to steal a prototype jet fighter that can be partially controlled by a Neuralink. This movie answers the trivia question for me. What else has Captain Piet been in? (laughs) Explain. Captain Piet from Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, the guy who rises in the ranks through Empire Strikes Back. Oh, fair enough. I have an action figure of Captain Piet. I have a... (laughs) I, I hope that's a, still in mint condition in the box. It is. It is. Oh, uh, I got it. College when I worked, fund paid for. When I work, no, it's not worth shit. It's from the nineties. <laughs> it is from the nineties. I was working at Toys R Us. I was opening a box of Star Wars toys, and I was like, "Oh shit, they made one of him. I'm buying it." <laughs> so I bought it, Captain Pitt. <sighs> Good yeah. times. Firefox. This is one of two movies from Clint Eastwood this year. Later in December, he would direct and star in Honky Tonk Man. So um, this is his follow-up to his directorial follow-up to Bronco Billy, not to be confused with Bronco Henry, who's making the rounds this year, and his acting follow-up to Any Which Way You Can. Which was his biggest grossing film ever up until the nineties? Huge. Was that I think it was that that was the sequel, right? Uh, because is the first one any which way you can but loose, and then yeah. they subtracted words for a sequel. I think what? so. I should just look this up while we're talking. <laughs> but no, Firefox. It is basically pitched as a what if Clint Eastwood but Star Wars to a certain extent, specifically the the dog fights mm-hmm. in the Star Wars, the first two Star Wars films. But loose was is- the first one in seventy eight. What was that? But Loose was the first one. They oh, cut yes, out, yes. They cut out that uh, for the second one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So. And yeah, if I, were, if I recall off the top of my head, that was his biggest grossing film, at least until Unforgiven. Yep. Um, people like monkeys. And then people you take like the Clint biggest, Eastwood with a monkey. You put the biggest star on the planet with a monkey. There you go. Exactly. Um, anyway, it's an interesting picture. I, I had never seen it before this. I had heard of it. It was mm-hmm. just not on my radar. Uh-huh. I was surprised at how much of a, up to a point, it's just a grounded, gritty, suspenseful spy thriller. Yeah. The first two acts of the picture, runs about 130 minutes, mm-hmm. it's basically him being recruited and him being sent into Russia mm-hmm. and him sneaking his way around with periodic bursts of violence and almost violence. Mm-hmm. And it's genuinely tense. And it, at least in my point of view, it's an unusual role in that, for most of the film, Clint Eastwood's character is scared shitless. Yeah. Uh, understandably. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it does present a bleak picture of, you know, Soviet era Russia. Good things, be- good thing things are better now. Well, he's um, got some post traumatic stress from Vietnam. We really knew what that was. And this yeah. is a Rambo, first-, uh, first Blood comes out this year, too. Yeah. And that. So, like, they couldn't have made this knowing what First Blood was. They yeah. These would have been in production around yeah. the same time. So it's like uh, like Conan the Barbarian and the movie at the end of our summer, Beastmaster, which Beastmaster wasn't a knockoff. They were, it was actually shooting before Conan, actually. So, but Firefox, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, 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 it's interesting to see him being vulnerable and, and afraid of the bad guys and yeah. afraid of the people that are out to get him. And, you know, that's understandable. And I'm not, you know, it's, 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 it makes him more in, you know, he spends a large chunk of the film wearing, you know, basically bookworm glasses and a Jim Gordon mustache. Yeah. It's weird. Um, to see Eastwood, Eastwood uh, normally would rock a beard. Yeah. If he had facial hair, but just straight mustache was interesting. Um, and and then you know the, the third the entire third act of the film is what you came to see, mm-hmm. which is spoilers. He steals the plane, and then you know escapes, and then is chased down by a, at least a couple other uh, you know Russian fighter pilots that would prefer he not escape with that plane. Right. Uh, and the, the film is violent when it needs to be. It's not particularly grotesque, but you know it's 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 very blunt about the sacrifices that those less dedicated Russians made to, you know, hinder the KGB at certain parts of the war. Um, if you want a really, really good movie about that, I suggest uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, the, the Courier that came out. In oh, yeah, that's a pretty cool film. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's on, I think it's for free on Amazon right now. Yeah, I had to review that one. It was yeah. bad. Yeah, it's a solid, solid picture. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. And the, the closing action scene, as long as it is, I would argue it doesn't generally become that redundant. Um, and I like the fact that even when he's in the sky and fending off other fighters, you know, the Russian government is like, look, this isn't personal. Just bring back the damn plane. Yeah, we're going to kill you when you do. But like, I mean, maybe we won't. We certainly won't do it painfully. Yeah. I, um, I personally thought like this was a pretty terrific, really good movie until he got on the plane. And then it was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It like it didn't sink the movie, but it was less interesting for me. Well, it was more formulaic. I think it's it's yeah. it's more what you thought you were getting out of a movie from the film synopsis. Right. Yeah. 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 I I did not expect this like dark uh, noir spy who came in from the cold, but with yes. a, a little bit up any of violence type movie. And I was really enjoying that. And I'm like, oh, he has to steal that plane at some point, doesn't he? <laughs> no, you're you're not wrong. I guess I sort of viewed it as a. I thought it was pretty solid action from a from a technical it, it, point it, of view. And it's pretty, especially impressive. back then. Yeah, no, it's impressive. It you is, know, and it's and you know, it, it's it's you know, sitting through the third act as formulaic as it is, is sort of the price that we pay for the really really strong first two acts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I am glad I saw it. I would. I'm not going to say you need to race out and see this unless you're a completist for uh, Clint Eastwood '80s pictures and/or you know Cold War melodrama. Again, I think it, it sort of, you know, it's it further enhances the notion that contrary to popular belief, most big Hollywood movies about the Cold War were horrifically jingoistic and nationalistic, right? Or you know. Even something like you know Rocky Four, the you know the Soviet system may be evil, but the Russian people aren't. Right? No, exactly, exactly. Um, and, mm-hmm. That's and, what know, I, I tell my I, I you know been tell you know tell my son about things too. Just so, you know, yeah. it's the it's the government officials you're mad you don't like. It's not yeah. not the people that I go because I remember I was like because I, I uh, we talked about like how he didn't he was not a fan of like. Uh, Donald Trump when Donald Trump was president and I told him like don't you think there's probably Russian kids like you and adults that aren't fans of Putin as well and he's like yeah you know what I'm like yeah they would be harmed in any kind of big bomb explosion or attack that you would do so yeah and you know uh, yeah there are some 80s pictures that I think laid it on kind of thick you know Red Dawn for example right yeah but I do think just because, I mean, the people that made these films aren't monsters. Mm-hmm. And because I think they understand that it's it's more compelling and it's more engaging and it's more gripping if the even the bad guys are human beings. Right. Now, the the 
inverse of that is frankly, I, you know, I wonder, and I'm getting a little off topic here, so forgive me. Mm-hmm. I wonder to what extent it has cost us in a pop cultural sense, having at least a decade full of villains that are, have good and virtuous reasons for being evil and are really sympathetic versus, you know, we've gone to a point from where, you know, back in my day in the nineties in the naked gun two and a half, which certainly isn't selling itself as a subversive political picture. The bad guys are corporate villains who want to destroy the environment just because. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, it's the bad guys are the ones that want to save the environment, but just don't want to do it the wrong way. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, oh, I have the my Marvel issue. villain. Well, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> sort of, you know, I think the rock was sort of the first one that did that. And it was fascinating at that time because I had never I don't want to say I've never seen that, but it really struck out the extent that Ed Harris's character was a sympathetic person doing a bad thing for a very good reason mm-hmm. and doing his damnedest not to, you know, commit evil in the in the uh, pursuit of a you know complicated good, a compromised good, right? To the point where he needs to get killed off before the end of the third act, so you can have an action climax. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's. I have my issues with Tenet, but I kind of appreciated that Kenneth Branagh was just a, you know, just a royal dickhead. Yeah. You know, he, 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 you know, maybe the people that sent him the stuff from the future have reasons, you know, blah, blah, climate change, blah, blah, blah. But he was just a dick. (laughs) He was just an asshole. Some men just want to watch the world burn, Scott. Pretty much. But anyway, I'm getting off the topic. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting, like, I would say that if you are a fan of, like spy drama, spy fantasy, and you're scrolling through like a streaming service. This pops up. Give it a shot. Like it's, yep. it's got a lot of this. It's got a lot of the qualities that you're going to be looking for in that. It's Eastwood in a role that you don't. He he gets to build himself up to be Eastwood again. Like he starts typical Eastwood, and it wind up your your Eastwood. But in the middle there, it's some very interesting stuff from him that you don't typically see. Um, and it's that kind of star driven thing. He's like he has this like this and like Denzel Washington would make a career on it where like he's the biggest star in this thing and he usually surrounds himself in movies with people that aren't that up once in a while the team up happens but usually like cuz like Denzel would do a movie uh where he's a detective and like the next notable name is like Dean Kane like that's <laughs> that's a, you know and Denzel you know made a career I'm gonna be the coolest dude in the room sorry yeah. and then we'll fill it out but actually it gets other people that you don't see often parts so that's yeah. also interesting too and I I know which Denzel Washington movie you're talking about out of time uh, out of which is awesome or out of time out film. of time yeah out of time yeah uh, and the irony is I mean to a certain extent when Clint Eastwood teamed up with somebody else the move the grosses tend to not tended not to reflect that. Because well, I mean, he made a film with, I think, Burt Reynolds. It was the, the biggest the thing in the world, and nobody went and saw it. Yeah. It bombed. I mean, I, mean, I'm, I could be mistaken, but yeah, it only made 30, $38 million on a 25 budget. There were two Titans uh, at the time. That was yeah. in, that was a huge deal. You know, he had a, I don't, I, he wasn't as tough as Pacino in the 80s, but he had some up and, ups and downs. Mm. Uh, I, you know, Sudden Impact was the most haha, impactful Dirty Harry sequel. Right. That's the one from, where, where, you know, go ahead and make my day. When people think of the Dirty Harry series, that's usually the, the one they think of. Right. Um, even though I think that the the Deadpool is the best of the five, or at least the most enjoyable. It's fun. Five. It's a good popcorn flick. I think yeah. I, I really like, I've, I've grown into liking Magnum Force a lot because it, I like that it, it throws the first one the first one's uh, ideals in its face. Like, yes. It, 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 I think it, they all kind of do. And you're correct. I'm not disagreeing with you. You're absolutely yeah. right. But I do think, and I wrote a paper on this in college about how the first three Dirty Harry sequels sort of all served as answers to criticisms of the first film. Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, strong, empowered female police officers. You had, you know, a black militant who was viewed in the, in the, in the third film, and the was viewed in a positive light. You have a feminist vigilante who righteously kills the men that raped her and her sister. And Harry goes right along with it because, you know, he realizes the difference between, you know, justice and the law or whatever. So in a, in a way, the films were answering certain criticisms about the first film, you know, that the 
Scorpio was a you know a negative stereotype of hippies mm-hmm. that you know the film you know the scene where he guns down the various black bank robbers had certain racial connotations although they knew that even when they were making the first film that's why they added a scene where he visits a doctor who happens to be black mm-hmm. and it's very obvious that they have a long friendly relationship mm-hmm. and then when you get the Deadpool they're sort of out of things to apologize for so that was just more of a romp yeah yeah, definitely. Although, oddly enough, that one, which is more of a romp, is the only one where Harry out and out commits murder. Yeah. Because the other ones, he always, you know, fires when fires first, tries to make them get, you know, tries to arrest them, yada, yada, yada. In this film, not only does he shoot the diner robbers before they even get a chance to surrender, he outright murders the villain at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy's out of bullets. He throws away his gun, and Harry spears him, shoots him with a spear gun anyway. Oh yeah! Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I, you know, I wrote when I was the Mendelssohn's Memos. I wrote all about the. That was my second series yeah. after James Bond. I, that was, it was a bit early to do a for me series after my first one, but I did it because I was like, <laughs> no one writes about Dirty Harry. And I got a whole lot of shit about uh, dated stuff. I'm like, it's movies. And the movies are actually point out these things that you don't think they are if you're not watching them. And Eastwood's a bit smarter than that. I don't think he is this gruff, but like ultra conservative person that people think he is all the time. But, um, and he's been, but, you know, yeah, he does side, come down the side of that. But I, I don't think he's as. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's a you know end of you know zero sum game, but mm-hmm. he's never going to live down that stupid chair stunt. Nope, nope. I mean and- that that was so beneath him. Yeah, or at least beneath who we assumed he was. But whatever. Right, and a guy like him, though, to be honest. He's too fucking busy making movies to really know what's going on yeah. in the fight. Like a lot of them, both sides of the coin. Like yeah. Clooney's the, yeah, the, the, got other things to do, right? <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, so, so Firefox, uh, solid, solid, and not yeah, like so. If it's on streaming, you see it like yeah, you like Eastwood, you like you like spy stuff. If you're really I'm, into planes, just to, to throw in other Eastwood '80s films that are better than Pink Cadillac. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen Tightrope? Yeah, that was it. Okay, yeah. That was, yeah. That was that may be my favorite 80s picture from him. It's, you know, slight synopsis. It's about a, a you know, a homicide cop who's hunting a, a, you know, a sexual murderer, a serial killer before they mm-hmm. were really par for the course and realizing that he shares some kinks with the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, and for his first time, it was very groundbreaking, the idea that it wasn't super judgmental about, you know, unconventional sexual fetishes. Mm-hmm. It does, however, feature a really meta creepy scene where his own teenage daughter is kidnapped, bound and gagged at his house. Mm. I mean, played by his own daughter. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a, well, he's got, I mean, look what he, he has. has Sa- Sandra Locke in all his movies yeah. too. I, you know, it's funny because she's been raped in like four of his movies, I think. Right. Yeah. Cause he, I know he's one of the first people when I was in high school and studying movies, like I, he was one of the first icons, first directors that I like yeah. picked up on the, like filmography and was going through um but yeah tightrope's pretty cool one yeah definitely now let's answer our trivia question it comes to us from daryl erdman of new richland minnesota who watches the show on channel 10 in rochester he wants to know what single held the same position within the top 10 aside from number one for the longest period of time well, that record was set just a few months ago when a four-man group kept a song at the number two position for an amazing ten consecutive weeks. It was a group whose members come from both England and America, and this group is used to spending long periods of time at that same position in the top ten. You see, last year they spent four weeks at number four with their song called Urgent, and it wasn't long after that that the group Foreigner spent a record-breaking ten weeks at number two with their song Waiting for a Girl Like You. And there's your answer, Daryl. Waiting for a Girl Like You by Foreigner has spent more weeks at one position in the top ten, excluding number one, than any other song. And it never did reach number one. Thanks for writing in. So we'll move on down to the Casey Kasem top 40, the top ten of the top 40, of course. Uh, We got some stagnant stuff, some movers, some shakers. Uh, Number ten, It's Gonna Take a Miracle by Denise Williams that drops in on the top ten for the first time. It Hurts So Good stays is here from John Cougar 
This is when he dumped the melon camp. John Cougar, Let It Whip by the Daz Band. Crimson and Clover by Joe Jett and the Black Hearts. Heat of the Moment by Asia stays put at number six. Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson also stays put at number five. The Other Woman, Ray Parker Jr. sticking at four. Number three, jumping up from number seven, Rosanna by Toto. Uh, jumping up one spot to number two, Don't You Want Me by The Human League. And continuing its dominance like it's E.T. or something, Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. So E.T. number one in the box office, which is going to keep happening. And we are still here. But maybe Don't You Want Me by The Human League will hop. It's been climbing. Maybe. And you know what? Rosanna, uh, Rosanna from Toto that's a jump, made a big jump. So maybe... Maybe. It's Casey Casey. Casey Casey would say, maybe. Or by request. <laughs> I always loved it when Casey Kasem, because I listened to the weekly top four. There's that him, and then there was Rick Dees was another one. But Casey Kasem would always be like, now let's take a time to read a letter. And he'd read this like really heartfelt thing, like, dear Casey, my, my dog passed away, and we used to always listen to such and such a song and da 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 so could you please play such and such a song and he'd be like Darcy no but instead we're gonna play da da like you couldn't fucking play that one she <laughs> cried her heart out and you're like here's a new hit that they played us money to, to debut on the show like you know like I was like oh Casey Casey oh nobody's favorite Robin Casey Kasem <laughs> Rest in peace, sir. You were a good Scooby or Shaggy. Why any kid would want to be an orphan is beyond me. And he's got it all. All the fun. All the power. All the knockouts. Who's next? All the music. All the romance. Wouldn't you like to see the bedroom? My little billiard ball? All the laughter. seen Annie until you've seen the movie rated PG. Can I just do a commercial? Starts Friday, Avco West to a Chinese Hollywood and selected theaters. Let's go on to another musical this summer, the wide release of Annie, which opened back in May, but you remember we decided to hold off for the wide release, which here we are, directed by John Huston. Uh, yes, that John Houston. Between uh, directing Victory and Under the Volcano, he'd follow this up with, written by Carol Sobieski, based on the stage play by Martin Chardon, and the book of the stage play by Thomas Meehan. So, uh, Sobieski, Oof. plenty of TV, including Peyton Place, Mod Squad, and she did. She wrote the film Fried Green Tomatoes. It stars Aileen Quinn, Albert Finney, Carol Burnett, and ranking Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters, and Jeffrey Holder. It is about a spunky young orphan who is taken in by a rich eccentric, much to the chagrin of the cantankerous woman who runs the orphanage. It's our first comic book movie of the summer. We did Conan, but he he originates in novels. Yes. So, Uh, And... Off the top of my head, it's probably the third biggest grossing comic book movie behind the first two Superman films. Oh. Unless like you know, unless I'm missing something, and I might be. Funny fact about when I was re- researching this, Steve Martin was supposed to play Rooster, but he and Bernadette Peters were on the breakup at the time. And so he had to leave the role. Because he's like, ah, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> Bernadette, no relation to me, Peters. Just saying. <laughs> I know uh, our Tim- voices are exactly alike, like we talked the same, but no relation. Uh, Tim Curry took over. Mm-hmm. If I were, yeah. It certainly is cast a type. Right. Um, I think Curry makes it his own. That's but true. yeah, these are the type of roles he gets. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. Cost something like, thir- you know, anywhere, depending on who you ask, 35 to $59 million. To be fair, it looks it. Oh, yeah. That time, the money's on the screen. Yeah. 
you know, it's a big, splashy, over-the-top Hollywood musical based on a source material that everybody, had, generally speaking, had heard of and liked. And the idea of getting a big movie out of it was somewhat of an event. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that big of a hit. No. It really wasn't a hit. It was kind of a flop. Yeah. It's, it's- I mean, it only did $35 million domestic all told. So I'm, I'm excuse me, 57 million domestic all told from a, I believe like a $5 million wide release opening weekend. Yeah. 5.3 and 1100 screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it, it had decent legs, but it never really had much momentum after that. Yeah. It's legacy. Um, like it's adoration comes from like home video. If there is, yeah. is, is there a big fondness for this? I mean, we all know. No, it just, the it was songs, the, only, it the, was the most didn't easy. come from the movie. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's a situation where if, you know, up until a point, if you wanted to watch an Annie, this was the one. Right. You, know, you could get it at a video store, you could watch it on TV or whatever. And it wasn't so much that people loved Annie, it was that it was it was a you know, a musical you could show your kids. It was iconic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the cats of its day, sort of. Right. Yeah, and yeah it's a, honestly, it's a movie that didn't do much for me. Never has. I, I showed um, it to my daughter. I watched it. My daughter yeah. watched it with me. She's since watched it before going to bed a time or two now since she yeah. watched it but yeah it's long mm-hmm. it has you know some solid it, it it has a good bounce like a, a good musical should have three of them that stick with you it's got it checks that box yeah of good uh bouncers carol burnett's great in it like she is this is like sneaky oscar like great <laughs> but like i don't think anybody i don't think anybody paid attention but it's yeah, it's a it's a long movie. It's I, I, I don't know. I hate I, to dignify these schmucks, but it actually was a major Raspberry or Razzie contender that year. Oh, it was or okay. Alien Quinn, who I think played Annie. That's yeah, yeah. She won Worst Supporting Actress. She's the lead. She's also like ten years old. Those bastards. Yeah. Well, she's not bad. She's not bad in it. It's just no. Of course not. There's just something uninteresting and boring about a lot of how it's played and looks, and it's done. Houston directs it like a '60s musical, and musicals and things have changed since then. So yeah, it's not. I mean, like Grease two last time, just. There's nothing cinematically interesting about just a camera far back watching choreography a lot of the times. There's I, I give this over Grease too that the songs are better and the filmmaking's better, but yeah. uh yeah, like I don't know, there's there's something Oliver-esque to this is like the female answer to Oliver basically. Yes. And except this would have benefited if this was a 60s film instead of a 1982 film. I think we'd be looking a little bit more fondly on it. But when we see the stuff that's surrounding it, uh, this feels like dated and old and not in a vintage, cute kind of way. Well, I also think Oliver is just, or is just better source material. I don't adore Oliver, the play or the movie, but I think it's I'll give an Andy interesting the song, case. Oliver, of, the story. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's an interesting example of taking a relatively dark piece of literature and making a kid-friendly adaptation with it, while still keeping the spirit of the content, right? In a way, not like Disney's Hunchback cartoon. Well, I was talking recently, not to switch it over to all Oliver, who has an exclamation <laughs> point. Yes, um, I was talking to Yancey Burns about this recently, like because we had both recently because it was in the Columbia Classics Volume Two collection for 4K. And we'd taken it in, and like Oliver used to be like in the a huge piece of the pop culture lexicon that yes. like no one would understand like the Artful Dodger, like uh, more please, like all everything from Oliver was like in your lingo, and everybody referenced things from Oliver. I think people reference things from Oliver not even knowing it was from Oliver. And there's so much stuff in that movie, and Oliver Reed is it's one of his best roles, and I know he's in a ton of Hammer movies, is good, but yeah. Like, He's fantastic at that, but like that movie used to be the staple of pop culture, and it's disappeared. Even well, though they've made other Olivers, that that particular one, it won Best Picture, of course. It did, but um, it's disappeared. Was it the last musical to win Best Picture until Chicago? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, Cabaret didn't take it. Cabaret took no, plenty of important yeah. awards away from The Godfather. 
Yeah. But deservingly, Cabaret's yeah. a fantastic film and changed how we could make musicals. Yes. Uh, it's um, a very important movie. But I do think part of Oliver's, the movie's situation is that there's an entire generation of film scholars that grew up thinking of Oliver as that silly musical that beat 2001. Yeah. Well, Oliver also was a musical winning best picture at a time when musicals were in the dumps. Yeah. Like, nobody was going to them. They were bombs. They were being overdone productions. And Oliver, I think the critic reviews were even not too big on Oliver, too. From what I remember, uh, I don't remember to be honest. They were they were like mixed positive, maybe they weren't like glowing. I don't think, but um, maybe they were. But I th- I want to say they weren't like it was kind of a surprise best picture winner a yeah, little bit that yeah. I do recall. But Annie had no shot, and it this I mean this should have been a summer hit summer, but it was expanding theaters. I mean it started low, and we've tracked that it was. But it was making a good percent, like good per theater average up till now. No, I am, I am wrong. Oliver got generally positive reviews right oh, out of the it? gate. Okay. Yeah. All right. I had to look it up. Okay. And yeah, it was a huge hit. It made like 77 domestic on a 10 million budget. Gotcha. Anyway. Well, it's like the nerds where they go, oh, Oliver beat 2001. Yeah. And Annie Hall beat Star Wars. And you can like both, and that's well, dance just, wolves and goodfellas. Yeah, dance I mean, holy shit! A three-hour anti-colonialism western that's violent as hell, starring a guy that was just starting to be a star. Mm-hmm. You know, makes four hundred twenty-four million worldwide, mm-hmm. and you are oh, it's not cool because Goodfellas should have won. Yeah, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction. That yeah, the, the endless debate of my favorite movie. Aaron Timo thinks they're both funny, and he's right. Yes. But yeah, Annie, I, it's got some neat moments and stuff, but all together, quite long in the tooth. It's kind of stunning. Like, Annie has kept going because they've done, like we talked about Grease before, they did Annie live on TV, and they re- did a, uh, another adaptation. I hate to call it a remake because it's adapting from a stage play, so it's another adaptation uh, with the Jamie Foxx and Cameron Diaz and Rose Byrne one, which I never saw. <laughs> it's but okay. It was another Annie doesn't do huge box office. Yeah, although I mean, it, it did like it did more than I expected. It cost mm-hmm. a lot. It wasn't. Yeah. It was an eighty-five million dollar picture. The final film of Cameron Diaz. Uh, might be by default. Yeah, yeah I think she retired right after that. Yeah, uh, yeah, did one hundred and thirty-seven million worldwide, which is a solid number. That's not bad. But it, it cost sixty-five to make. Okay. Mm. Um. Yeah. And it's a shame because without getting into old discourse, the film came out right during the Sony hack. Oh, okay. And there were a lot of embarrassing emails related to how certain higher ups did or didn't what they did or didn't think about their black talent. Mm. And at the time I was like, okay, some of this stuff is a little offensive, but they're the ones subsidizing a, you know, Qu- Quinzavella Honey Wallace starring musical co-starring Jamie Foxx and AAA from Lost. Other studios aren't doing that. <laughs> and at the time, I ran the numbers, and at that time, Sony had put out more Black-centric mainstream theatrical releases over the last few years than any other studio. Gotcha. Especially if you don't count stuff with The Rock. Um, but I don't think that's the case anymore, just by default. Mm. Um, anyway, but and um, do you have any memorable well, favorite songs from Annie Scott? No. no. Tomorrow, tomorrow, or Hard Knock Life. That's they're fine. They're fine. They that stick. Was, it was never one of my favorites. Not mine either. Not mine either. But yeah, it was interesting to revisit this. And I, yeah. like, I remember the for some reason I forgot John Houston directed this. So that came up. I was like, ouch. Oh, all right. From the director of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> Star of The Visitor. Uh. <laughs> the guy who, who slept with his daughter and wanted to fondle his daughter, granddaughter, in Chinatown brings you Little Orphan Annie. <laughs> uh. Oh. Oh, but yeah, so... 
Started off on Andy's box office, but let's look at the top ten, Scott, for this week. Wonder what number one is. Spoiler, it's E.T. again. $12.6 million, rising 6.6% as word of mouth continued to kick ass and take names for Spielberg's critically acclaimed sci-fi blowout. Uh, adding an additional 13 screens for an additional or for an 1116 screen total. ET the extraterrestrial earned eleven thousand two hundred ninety nine dollars per screen. Wait, wait, 13 no. is in like 10 plus three is what yes. they add. Ooh, expansion. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, it would earn $34.4 million in its first 10 days of release. It would be its second weekend at number one with many, 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 many more to come. Clint Eastwood's Firefox opened with a very strong $8.1 million on 881 theaters. The $20 million picture was the most expensive film Eastwood had made up to that point. Um, it would eventually go on to earn... $46 million on oh. 20 budget, which back then was just fine. Oh, yeah. Number three was Rocky Three, holding on really well, frankly. It dropped 23% in its fourth weekend, remaining on 1,232 screens for a $55 million 24-day total. Star Trek Two was in fourth place, dropping a bit because, you know, it's a fan-driven project, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's Rocky's point- holding and Star Trek's falling. That's yes. interesting, yeah. Uh, 6.2 million in weekend four, a 33% drop in 1,508 screens, losing 113 screens for a still perfectly fine $42.117 million seven day total. Annie, after four weeks, yeah, four weekends in 14 theaters, Annie expanded to 1,102 theaters and uh, nobody showed up. $5.3 million. For a miserable $4,820 per screen average, the film would limp to approximately, that's the wrong Annie, (laughs) hold on, Uh it would limp to $57 million domestic. Hmm. Um, Poltergeist did 4.7 in weekend three, dropping 12% in just 911 theaters. Uh, for a $24.3 million 17-day average, author author would open to $2.27 million in 500 theaters. Uh, it would eventually gross a whopping total of $13.1 million. Alas. Meanwhile, uh, I apologize. Mm, excuse me. That's how I felt about Grease 2 as well, Scott. Well, yeah, Grease 2 drops. Holy shit. Yeah. Let me tell you something. For a movie in 1982, <laughs> dropping 51% is a freaking catastrophe. My God. I don't know if that was a record at the time, but it had to be pretty close. The word got out on Grease. Yeah, Grease, Grease 2 stinks was the word. <laughs> um, it's got neither style nor feel, whatever the lyrics are. I don't remember. Uh, anyway, $2.26 million in 1,250 theaters, $9 million over 10 days. It's dead. <laughs> Meanwhile, the unkillable sword and the sorcerer. <laughs> I love again, it. Kicking the Conan the Barbarian's ass. Yeah, where's Conan? Earning, Not in the top 10. Earning twice as much <laughs> in, weekend, uh, in weekend nine as Conan did in weekend six. It's insane. With like, 1. what was the big seven million dollars? What was the best, big, the the strongest fantasy movie in 1982? People were like, Cone in the Bar. No, no, I don't care what the final <laughs> totals are. Sword and the Sorcerer. Meanwhile, speaking of unkillable, Porky's is still in the top ten for one last weekend. I assume <sighs> it's one last weekend. I haven't looked at the next week. Uh, nope, it drops out of the top ten. Yep, I peaked too. Um, <laughs> I was like, I, I have to know. By the way, are we talking at all about the major re-release that is dropping next weekend? Uh, Bambi? 94.7 million after 14 weekends for Porky's. Meanwhile, Hakey Bakey, which is not a Porky spinoff, would earn $1 million in weekend three, dropping 53%, losing 431 screens for Mm. a 776 screen total. That's That's the Gene Wilder one, right? Yep. Which, you know, we talked about how his company, you know, the attempted comeback film for him and Richard Pryor was Hear No Evil, See No Evil in 1989, also directed by Arthur Hiller. So just throwing that full circle alert in. 
Um, and in number 12, Conan the Barbarian with $869,000 in 687 screens for a $36.7 million total. It, it's kind of interesting that the comedy of the summer is Porky so far, and it was yeah. not released in the summer. Yeah, it's. Uh, I do need to watch. I need to watch Porky's and Sword and the Sorcerer at some point because mm-hmm. that's a fast. I did not know that until I started doing this podcast. Yeah, um, very interesting. Yeah, like I Sword and Sorcerer, I thought was some like. Some B, one of the, you know, one of those, I'll... You know, crawl the Conqueror off. or whatever. Not only does it or, come out before the, before uh, Conan, and it also does last at the box office way better and longer yeah. than Conan. Conan's been in for what, like, uh, uh, maybe a month? Yeah. I mean, you know, Dragon Slayer came on 81, that only did 14 million. And that one is commercially speaking justifiably forgotten and just mm-hmm. another fantasy film that played in that era i enjoy it just because it's a super young peter McNichol. yeah um but otherwise you know it's just it's a film that existed in that time i didn't like those movies back then but i enjoy, yeah. enjoy them now for some reason i don't know what it is but i'm like all right i like these cheapy fantasy films i think there's a certain try-hard nature when you know they're doing everything by hand yeah true 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 um but, yeah. yeah, that'll do it for uh, the weekend that was June 18th to 20th. Scott, thanks again, as always, for joining me. This has been is always so much fun. Um, looking forward. We're almost to the halfway point. We're get, we're edging up there. Uh, before we sign out, uh, let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Scott Mendelson at Forbes.com or the ticket booth. You can Google some variation of those three words, and that will get you where you need to go. And boy, that article you dropped this week was a doozy. Oh, we don't, right, we right, don't right. know. We don't know <laughs> when we're recording what you dropped this week. Oh, but you don't want to miss next week. We have one of the biggest film geek weekends of all time as Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford team up for a Philip K. Dick adaptation. John Carpenter and Kurt Russell take a spin on an old classic. Hal Needham and Barry Bostwick go sci fi. And uh, will Porky's manage to eke out one more week? No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, the top ten, it's finished. And uh, who knows, but nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition as we take on the final weekend of June 1982. Stay film positive. Last summer of 82 at Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. Show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. <laughs>